and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. This week, we dug into real estate. When I had J.D. Ross, co-founder of Open Door, on the podcast, we chatted about how massive of an opportunity real estate is. The global stock of institutional-grade real estate is set to triple over the next 15 years, with some estimates pegging values at $70 trillion. It's why I was so excited this week to chat with Keith and Galena Wasserman, CEOs of Gelt and Sky Ventures, respectively. Keith and Galena started in this industry from scratch at the peak of the recession in 2008. Fast forward a little over 10 years, and they've amassed a portfolio with an asset value of over $1.3 billion. In this episode, we explored a couple of different themes. We talked about the nuances of real estate, the fundamentals, how to value a property, and characteristics of a good investment. We talked mentality, an immigrant's mindset, an entrepreneur's mindset, and the philosophy of making money on the buy. And we snuck in a little bit of tech, the impact of tech on real estate, cloud kitchens, and autonomous vehicles, and the early stage venture fund Keith and Galena started to get exposure to other industries. This one was a ton of fun, and I learned a bunch from both Keith and Galena. Welcome, guys. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, excited. Excited to have you both on the show today and really talk all things real estate. You know, you guys are our first guests on the show where we're really going to go deeply into an area outside of pure tech. So before we jump in, you know, tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds and how you both got into real estate. Um, yeah, I got into real estate because I, I grew up in a real estate family. Um, that wasn't their primary business. My, my dad is a successful attorney, but he always told me real estate is where the real money is at. He said, don't ever be an attorney. You can only bill by the hour. There's only limited number of hours in the day. And I started understanding. And, you know, when he started, you know, showing us, you know, some of these real estate investments that he made, you know, decades ago and how much they're worth now and how much cash flow he makes. And I started, you know, understanding that most people with wealth uh, have either built their money in real estate or that's been their primary business. So I said, you know, hmm, there's something, something there. So I literally, you know, I graduated from uh, USC in uh, 2007 and then all through 2008, I worked uh, getting my broker's license and literally got started, you know, December of 2008, sort of a similar, similar eerie kind of time where as today when the stock market was dropping, uh, you know, thousand points a day kind of thing. And we were in the midst of a, a recession and um, yeah, we just went in and bought a, a single four unit building in Bakersfield, California in the Central Valley. And that's literally how I got my start in this business. Yeah. My background's a little different. I was uh, born in Ukraine, Russia. And so my family immigrated uh, to the States when I was four and a half years old. And I grew up watching my parents work really hard. Uh, and the longer they worked and the harder they worked, they may have made a little bit more money, but then a lot of that money went to taxes and so forth. And uh, I read a book, most of you probably have heard of it, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was 14. And that was the first time I heard of something called passive income. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. You don't need to work, you know, 20 hours, 18 hours. Uh, I went to UC San Diego and uh, I majored in uh, urban planning was one of my majors. Um, and I went to go work for uh, a VP at Colliers International, which was a large brokerage company. And I interned for him. And uh, I did office sales and leasing. I ended up going and partnering with him when I graduated college. And uh, it was 2008, the market had tanked. Uh, so clearly Keith and I are good luck, obviously. Um, we started right around the same time. I, I did brokerage for about seven years, eight years, something like that. Um, and I made 
good money. Um, it, it was a very, you know, grind type of business. Um, and you basically restarted every year. It was all about the book of clientele that you built. Um, but then I went, uh, I met a general contractor from a, a project that I was doing for one of my clients, which was a lease up of a creative uh, industrial office park in Burbank that I helped put together. And uh, he introduced me to an older gentleman that had several homes, single family homes in West Toluca Lake. And uh, he ended up selling one of them to me. Uh, and we purchased the house for 400K which sounds crazy when I say it now, so cheap. And the seller carried back 100K and we got a loan from Logic's credit union. Keith and I were dating or maybe engaged at the time, I don't recall. Uh, and uh, yeah, everything that could go wrong with that project went wrong. And then I bought the lot next door and did another one and another one and then parlayed that into larger multifamily projects. And so talk a little bit, you know, Kalina, you, you mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, and Keith, you've joked, you know, previously before about, you know, never having a real job, right? I think you're both getting at something, you know, something interesting there, which is talk about, you know, that mindset of, of really being an entrepreneur, right? And, and value creation as opposed to having a job or, you know, billing by the hour or so. Yeah, um, I think it's just a mindset, really. <clears throat> I, um, I'd rather start something small and take take it years to really start growing and, you know, making any significant money than to work for someone and, and, and make more money. And just, I wanted to create something from scratch that you build the culture, you build a vision, you learn by doing, and you, you recruit team members that fit your mold. And I, I, I've never wanted to really work for anyone. You know, it's, it's always been a, just a mindset. I always wanted, knew I was going to run my own business. I didn't know what it was going to be. Real estate sort of, I saw the opportunity, you know, preparation and opportunity meet, and you just got to be open to it. There's opportunities around us every day. And I saw the, the writing was on the wall to get into real estate when people were scared and prices were significantly down. Our, our first building was, we bought it in Bakersfield in, in a rough part of town. It was only $150,000 and each unit rented for six ninety five dollars times four. And our, our, our whole mortgage payment was only $600. So if you do the math, we were crushing it even if we had two or three of the units rented, right? So it was sort of a no-brainer time. And yeah, I think um, we bring that entrepreneurial mindset uh, to our business today, even though you know we've been doing it now 11, 12 years. We're very entrepreneurial. We've started other businesses that have come out of our you know, current business. Uh, for example, my cousin and I started, um, along with our, th our third partner, Michael Lightfoot, uh, Demuso, a financial technology company, where we handle all the rent rent payments on these large multifamily properties. So we became our first client, for example, because we saw a lot of inefficiencies in that. So, you know, just having that entrepreneurial mindset, um, taking risks, you know, I, I talk to a lot of younger people every day and they always ask me like, how do I get started? That's, you know, the, the first question out of their mouth. And I said, there's no right or wrong path, right? My path was, you know, more entrepreneurial and starting from scratch with a tiny little, you know, building. Other people start in brokerage, they get their base like that, like Galena did. Other people start by working for larger companies, learn that way. You know, there's no, there's no right or wrong uh, way to do it. Everyone has their own unique path. I, I think for me it was a little bit different. Um, Keith had the mindset of never work for anybody else. With immigrant parents, uh, the mindset was you're going to work really hard. You're going to become a pharmacist, maybe a lawyer, and that's what you're going to do. <laughs> and that was my mindset. Um, but my father was an entrepreneur. He uh, 
we used to go to the swap meets together. My dad would take me and we would sell um, streetwear. Uh, it was basically like the chunky shoelaces, uh, <coughs> FUBU, Adidas, uh, all those brands that were starting to, um, to come on the scene and, and, and really get popular. And I was always under the impression that I was going to go to college and I was going to get a really high paying job somewhere. And in fact, I had an offer to come uh, work at um, Pfizer and Eli and Lilly uh, as a pharmaceutical sales rep. And for a college kid who was just graduating, all expenses paid, signing bonus, pretty large size salary for a kid who didn't have very much growing up. I mean, I thought I was killing it. Um, and so that, that, that was kind of the path that I, that I was headed on, except uh, I've, I've always worked since I was very young and I waited tables throughout college and I was never dependent on a salary, so to speak. Everything I, I, I did was performance-based. Um, and I had sales jobs in college, working for the Greek telephone directory. I don't know if you, whoever's listening, if they're uh, old enough to remember what that is, but that was before social media and smartphones. And I would sell a lot of ad, ad sales in that, in that book. And I think I, was, I finished second in the, in the country. Um, and so that gave me the confidence to believe that, you know what? I don't need to work for somebody else per se. I can actually start my own thing and be in charge of my own destiny and not have to be stuck to a paycheck that uh, will be the same every month, regardless of what you do or don't do. And so you, you guys take this mindset, right? You can apply this mindset in obviously many different respects, right? You can be an entrepreneur in anything, right? And most of the folks we have on this show, we talk about, uh, we talk about tech, right? Whether it's venture backed companies, right? Startups, so on and so forth. Um, you guys are in real estate and I want to, I want to dive in and dig in really deeply into real estate today and, and particularly why the focus on real estate, just to give our listeners background, you know, Keith, you started out in 2008 with zero assets, knowing nothing about real estate, right? Galena, you just talked a little bit about, you know, your experience in, in growing in the industry. Collectively, you guys now have a portfolio worth over a billion dollars in asset value, right? Let's talk a little bit more. Let's let's kind of pair back to the beginnings. Why real estate as the focus to apply that entrepreneurial mindset in? So we picked real estate because there's so much of it, and it's not a winner take all kind of business like like an Uber, Lyft, you know, one or two a duopoly or monopoly kind of business. There's enough of it for anyone to get started and build wealth over time, and you know, collect buildings. Um, and it's it's easy to understand, right? I mean, it's it's real property. It's always going to have intrinsic value in the land. And if you buy in a good area that's increasing population and, and job growth, and over time, it's just going to increase in value. The uh, replacement cost is going to keep rising. It's, it's the best way, you know, just buy and hold and inflation will take care of it. You know, if you take good care of the building and, you know, I have a saying, run it like a Honda, take good care, don't over-improve it for the area. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a beautiful thing. It works for you. Like Leno was saying, the rich dad, poor dad, we were collecting rent, you know, now digitally with Demusa, 24 hours a day, you could pay your rent. And, and, you know, we have great, you know, cash flow coming from these buildings for ourselves and for our investors. I think for me, all I knew growing up was sales. That's what I knew how to do. I knew I was good at that. And real estate effectively is also sales. And so I went into real estate for that purpose because I had the confidence and belief in myself that I could do it. I had interest in it because I've always wanted to own real estate. Um, 
for the, the, the wealth aspect of it, but it wasn't because I wanted the largest house or a fancy car. Um, I just wanted to take care of my family. And when you grow up and you, you're coming from an immigrant family who for your entire life has told you, we left everything behind and came here for you just so that you can make something of yourself that carries a lot of weight. Um, and so that's why I chose real estate. And you guys have this concept um, that that's an interesting framing, right? And it's it's pretty counterintuitive, but you have this concept of make money on the buy versus make money on the sell. I want you guys to talk about that a little bit more because when you think about tech, that's it's exactly the opposite, right? The, ultimately, the idea is to create an asset that's valuable enough that there's a lump sum at the end, right? Talk more about that idea. Yeah, I mean, in tech and in building any traditional business, you always want to, you know, create some kind of liquidity event because businesses could be displaced with newer technology, you know, outdating, it, it could be outdated, it could, you know, change with the times and in, 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 um, in, in real estate, uh, you want to hold permanently if you can, you know, in good areas, um, you know, the cash flow will keep growing, growing over time. Sure, there'll be downturns and where, you know, rent will dr drop or occupancy will drop or accommodation, but, um, you know, you if you could just keep parlaying that and keep re, you, there's something you could do with refinancing your properties, pulling out cash out refinance, and that's not even considered income. You could then use that money to buy more properties. And some of the most successful people I know have built large portfolios uh, in that manner. So, um, you know, yeah, a lot of these businesses and the venture backed ones need to sell because their investors need liquidity events. Right. So, um, you know, in real estate, it's, it's, generational it can be passed on there's great tax benefits uh by you know with passing on you know real estate there's great tax benefits of the income because of depreciation it's mainly sheltered in the beginning years um you have the 1031 exchange where you if you do sell it you can roll it into another property and, and defer the taxes that way it, it's it's just a beautiful thing that they've set up and you know we're just taking advantage of it le legally you know i view it from a little bit of i'm extremely conservative i'm not as um big of a risk taker as keith is and we probably make a good team for that reason but um when we say make money on the buy we don't know what the building's going to sell for in five years seven years i mean we have formulas and we do projections and we do studies sure but take where we're at today none of that means anything a valuation that i had pre-covid 19 for a building that we're all in for about 10 million on was valued at 16 million. Is it still worth 16 million? Probably not. Um, and that was just a few weeks ago. And so I think it's critical that if you hold it, and I, I agree with Keith, if you hold it, hold it long-term enough and you're able to weather the storms, you will make money on the sale. Um, but if you buy it wrong and you overpay for a property, you're going to lose money in uh, a scenario like where we're in right now, where you have COVID-19, you have several of your tenants may not be paying rent and there's nothing you could do about that right now. So you better have enough in reserves um, and you better have raised up enough money up front to, to get through this. Uh, and you better have a great relationship with your lender that will uh, work with you if you need to do a loan supplemental or whatever the structure may be. Um, so I, I think if you think of real estate from that perspective, you will do well. But if you think of real estate of, oh, I'll buy this and sure, maybe I'm overpaying it, but you know what, it'll be worth double next year. You don't know that.
Yeah, and one of the best stories on making money on the buy is, you know, when we bought the, the little uh, piece of land for our nine-unit development, you know, it was um, it was listed by a residential real estate broker, and, you know, it was, it was a church that was defunct, it was disbanding, and one of the church members was the seller, you know, they were a residential broker, and they didn't really market it well, and um, we, they were marketing it in the wrong city to begin with. It was like it was like in Silver Lake, but they were marketing it as like East Hollywood, for example, right? I mean, totally different places. Um, so we ended up buying the church. It was uh, two parcels, but they were not contiguous. One was across the street from the other, and they this the broker was trying to get 1.3 million. We put it under contract for 900k. And then I ended up assigning the parcel across the street for 500K. So our basis into the deal was virtually nothing. Um, and, and, and that's the best way to do it. If you could get any sort of real estate and have your basis into it be very, very low, you just made money on the buy. Yeah, looking back, you know, some of our best buys were made in 2010, 11, 12 in, in Phoenix when, you know, blood was in the streets and there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, we bought... Um, a 415 unit on uh, Camelback Road, right by the Biltmore Hotel in Central, you know, kind of Phoenix, and we, we paid 16 million dollars for that. And we we sort of undercapitalized it. We only invested maybe a million dollars into the property. We sold it for 27 million dollars a few years after that, and we thought we were geniuses. And it, re, it later resold for 45 million. It's probably worth 55 to 60 today. So, you know, um, definitely uh, if you could hold on to real estate, you, you, you know. You're not going to have that heartburn it's when you see it later on transact for higher and higher values. So how do you guys evaluate a piece of property, right? I think any investment ultimately boils down to three to five key characteristics, really regardless of asset class, right? So what are the characteristics you look at in making the decision on what to purchase? Yeah. So on the gelt side, I'd say um, we look at markets first that we like that are growing, population growth. Um, job growth, uh, a lot of in-migration, a lot of, you know, like, like in terms of Salt Lake City is a great market, has a lot of, you know, a lot of birth, you know, it's the youngest uh, state, Utah's is the youngest state in the nation, it has um, a lot of educated workforce, um, multilingual, for example, and pro-business, so we look for um, markets for different reasons. Uh, Phoenix, we got in in 2010, because it was the fifth or sixth largest city in the United States, but it was really decimated because of the housing bust. And I knew long-term that Phoenix would, would come back. I didn't know how long, but um, you know, we, we chose that market because of its size and the growth people you know, are, I think, still gonna keep coming to Phoenix. And now it's been growing tremendously over the last few years, leading the nation in rent growth. Um, Denver has been booming. So you know, we, we start, first learn about a market, spend time on the ground there with the local brokers, understand, what parts of town we want to buy in and then try to buy at least a thousand units in any specific market we go into. Um, obviously, you know, we look at uh, cap rate, you know, what kind of cap rate we're buying at, which is net operating in income divided by purchase price. Um, we look to buy something with a story, something that's mismanaged, something that had a building that has deferred maintenance, below market rents and needs, you know, interior or exterior renovations or both. Um, and, uh, or, or something that's, been renovated already, but it just throws off great cash flow. Um, a lot of buyers in the last couple of years have been attracted to anything, you know, that's value add, quote unquote. And that's sort of been priced in the last couple of years. So uh, you're doing all that work, improving the building and, but not getting paid for it essentially. So 
um, you know, we're, we're trying to buy in markets that are more higher to barrier to entry. Um, we bought in Albuquerque, for example, because it's very low um, supply in the pipeline. And, and now we're seeing some tremendous rent growth there, you know, in sleepy Albuquerque, um, one of our best performing buildings there. And yeah, that's been our motto is, you know, we buy 200 unit and up uh, institutional size properties, but we allow the retail investor to come in and, um, you know, it's, it's uh, they're professionally managed. They have on-site maintenance, on-site leasing staff, and, you know, we just hold them for long-term cash flow and appreciation. And I'll let Glenn on the sky side, uh, we complement each other nicely because most of our buildings are out of state and most of hers are in-state. Uh, we have a little different strategy. Yeah, mine's... Uh different than Keith's. Uh, Gelt is mainly workforce housing. Uh, but I saw an underdeveloped opportunity in the market where a lot of the apartment buildings are very bland and vanilla, uh, and there's no design element to them, and it's not something that reflects uh, who you are as a person, what you wear, what, you know, your design aesthetic, and so forth. Um, I primarily look at high barriers to entry markets here in LA that have not had new product type for decades or longer in some instances um, that have a bunch of new retail going in. And so my key components are it has to be walkable, so it has to have a 78 walk score or higher. It has to be uh, near a metro, so uh, walking distance to a metro within 15 minutes away by car. Um, and the third component is uh, I look at a few things, like who's in the restaurants, what are, what are they consuming? What are they doing? I really understand the renter and what they're looking for. I look at Craigslist and see what's out there. I look at apartments.com. I go on Reddit. I go on the mommy groups on Facebook and see what, they, what they're asking for. Um, and it's actually quite interesting because we're nowhere near uh, a housing model that reflects what people really want, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, th those are the key components. And then I take it to our analyst here in the in a, within the company, I say, okay, I believe in this particular building. Make the numbers work. Let me know. Um, and that's typically how it goes on the sky side. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more, right? Because and I want to pull together again the concept of kind of make money on the buy as as a thread through this. You know, when you think about early stage investing in tech, for example, right? People will have fundamentally different perspectives on kind of worldview on on thesis on whether something will happen in an industry, right? So there's a lot there's significant debate over, you know, whether your hypothesis is of a certain behavior kind of matches what the company is going to solve for. Certainly pre-product market fit and pre-scale capital, right? In real estate, as I understand, again as an as an outsider, there's really two primary ways to evaluate real estate. It's you've got kind of a comps and you've got an income approach. And so I'm curious from your guys' perspective, how inefficient is the market from a knowledge-based perspective? So when I say that, I mean, is there something unique in the way you analyze the property, you know, which gets you to a different outcome versus, you know, a comps or kind of income-based approach really that anybody can run, right? To ensure that you make money on the buy or, you know, does it start to be that once you get to a certain scale, so you guys have a portfolio of over a billion in asset value, you can tap into capital markets more effectively. What's what's the edge in terms of how you evaluate properties? Um, I'll speak to that because uh, a lot of the properties that Skya buys does not have any comps. Uh, again, because there's no new product there or, or first to entry. Um, so there's a couple of things that I do. Um, I do basically kind of like focus groups where I'll go to the local coffee shop and I'll talk to 
the people there and I'll say, hey, are you renting? Where are you renting? How much are you paying? And I'll sit there for hours and then I'll go to another one and I'll pull that data together. Um, we actually bought a building in uh, Highland Park um, and the rents were really low. And uh, I knew it was an area that was, uh, had a lot of demand for updated newer housing and there were no comps. And so what I did was I posted a picture on Craigslist with a description of what the renovated product would look like. And I did it at different rental rates. And I left my number on there and I fielded calls, right? So like $1,300 a month uh, got like hundreds of calls. Then the $1,600 still got a couple of calls. And then the higher one, maybe not as much. So I knew it was somewhere in the middle. Um, and so I kind of did my own, my own study that way. Another thing I, I tend to do and I'm starting to do more of now is I, um, I, I have a company that I use for marketing and SEO and, and so forth. So I'll have them pull what are people searching for in this particular market? And is it one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms? And it tells you what the search engines uh, are populating for that month. And it's actually really interesting because uh, a lot of what people are searching for is more like um, three bedrooms and we have a lot of ones and studios and twos um, and uh, micros and furnished, a lot of fur the people looking for furnished uh, units. Um, and so I, I tend to look more at, at that data than I do, you know, what did it sell on a price per land square foot and what's the cap rate and that sort of thing. Yeah, she sort of set, Galena sort of sets the market in in uh, when she builds new or she does a major renovation. We take the more conservative approach and we look for other comps of buildings that have been renovated to sort of where we're going to peg our rents. We don't want to, you know, take that kind of risk in the markets we're in. It's workforce housing, different you know demographic, and um, you know, so we sort of see what other things are selling for, other things are renting for. You know, we know what the building should be running at, you know, in terms of expense stack and stuff and, you know, where we could reduce costs. And we just sort of know all, all based on our whole portfolio. Um, and, this is, you know, different kind of profile, I'd say, between Gelt and Sky. When you, it's interesting to hear kind of the, the slight difference in the way you guys think about it also, because I'm, I'm curious how, you know, Keith, you talked about the mindset earlier, of, you know, A, never selling your properties and then B, running them like Hondas. And I really like that phrase, right? How is that thought process for both of you formulated over the years, Galena, if you agree, right, with that philosophy, right, Keith, you clearly do. How is that thought process uh, formulated over the years? And how have you thought through that more and more as the portfolio has scaled? Um, yeah, I think, you know, we, uh, we buy a lot of older buildings built in the 70s and 80s. <clears throat> and you know, we, we, we tend to hold them longer term. And, um, you know, if, if a building starts really eating away with, with CapEx needs, then we try to sell it and upgrade into a little bit newer building like, with, like we have been over the last couple of years, something built in the 90s or even 2000s and newer. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we try to, you know, just spend as much money on renovations as needed. If you overspend on something, you're not, you're not gonna get paid in the rent. It's not worth doing, right? Um, and in terms of like, we always fix any deferred maintenance items. It's not like we're slumming the building. Health and safety has come first and making sure, you know, the, the, the buildings always looks good and curb appeals high and, you know, in good shape. But um, we, yeah, it's, it's just been a philosophy with us since the beginning, you know, sort of not over improving. 
Mine's a little bit different. Um, I agree with Keith's philosophy for his product type and the markets that his in, that he's in. On my side, uh, things are a little bit different. I, for every building that I've done, I have visualized and taken pictures of my customer, like literally down to what they drive, where they eat, where they shop, everything that they would want. Um, and it, it's more, my product, my apartment buildings are more driven towards the user, right? Who, who is my customer? Um, and it's also for me, everything is urgent. Like it needs to happen right now. And sometimes I'll call my property management companies pretending to be a renter or something to see how, to see how quickly they expedite the request and I drive them crazy. But um, for me, it's, it's customer service and it's also product type and it, differentiating myself between the other apartment buildings that are available for lease. You can't just put up an apartment building and you put in a pool and you put in a mail room and you know, you call yourself unique and expect to get higher rents. That's not, it's not going to work. It's I, I'm, I, I really like the customer kind of lens and customer focus, Galena, the way you think about it, um, because I'm curious about, and I want, I want to talk a little about internet and tech and how it's changing real estate, right? So Keith, you've jumped kind of heads down in the space, both with the software company you were mentioning earlier, as well as an early stage, you know, venture fund for Gelt. Um, and Galena, you have a, a very strong focus on kind of the actual user and the customer when you're thinking about your properties. If we pull up a level, you know, to some of the key characteristics we were talking about earlier, you know, when evaluating a property, et cetera, these trends certainly inform a perspective on which properties are attractive going forward, right? So I want to I want to go through kind of a couple of different types of trends and and get a perspective from both of you on how you're thinking about how that affects your properties and how that affects the landscape you look at. Let's start with co-living spaces, right? So Galena, when you when you think about co-living spaces, right, and again in in kind of Sky portfolio, et cetera, how do you think about that? Well, Skya actually has a co-living uh, project that uh, will be coming to LA here shortly. Um, we're in the entitlement phase of it now, but when I think of co-living, um, I think about my end user, right? First and foremost, who is my customer? What do they look like? Uh, I've studied all the data. Coincidentally, the average age is actually 33. Um, mm. They're freelancing. Um, and I think about what they would want within the building. So for this particular project, we're going to have a podcast room. And it's not because it's cool or it's like the new thing that's in, but because a lot of the uh, renters that would be attracted to this have side projects or they're dabbling with creative things like that. Um, it's going to be 100% furnished, all utilities included. Um, our average rent is uh, I think $16.50, so it's fairly affordable. Uh, we'll have parking and there'll be curated community events. We're going to be, be bringing in speakers. So, it, it, and, and you're going to have a office component on the ground floor where you don't need to rent an office. You have Wi-Fi, internet, high speed, everything is done over your phone. So uh, you're actually gonna be paying your rent through Demuso. Um, and it reflects how we're accustomed to living today. I could order anything I want right now. Well, maybe pre-COVID, anything I want right now and it'll be at my doorstep in an hour. Um, and people wanna see that in their apartment building. Uh, we have uh, a package room that's gonna have uh, a place for all of their, their shipments uh, that we'll take in. Um, but I, I believe in co-living because it's um, it's a more um, it's a it, it it tackles a few things in housing, which is um, 
the affordability piece, the loneliness piece, and then the network piece that you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, and then as far as technology goes, we're so behind to tell you the truth in apartment buildings. There's no reason why I can't build an apartment building offsite in a factory somewhere. You know, it'll bring it in and, and be done with the whole construction project within three to six months. But I can't do that because of the bureaucracy and everything else that's involved in, in development and with the city planning departments and so forth. Um, it's sad to say that our technology, what that looks like is keyless entry. I mean, that's really the extent of it. Uh, and online rent payments, which is not revolutionary whatsoever, but that's where we're at. Um, and one, one other piece too is flexibility. And we're partnering with Obligo, uh, Demuso is as well, where the um, tenant could uh, now finance their security deposit through this platform and not have to come out of pocket with such a high deposit that that money's sitting there not doing anything for them. Uh, so I'm really actually excited about that. How are you guys thinking about cloud kitchens? Um, you know, Keith, when you have kind of the rental payment side of the business as well, I think it's, and I think this is to a broader question as well, you know, one of the things that I get really interested in, in, in general, in, in any sector, right, and I'm curious to hear your guys' perspective on real estate, is what are the non-obvious pieces of information, right, you can collect to inform your perspective. Um, cloud kitchens is always something to me that's that's quite interesting, I mean, certainly from a technology perspective, but from a real estate perspective as well, because cloud kitchens are going to be a really good hub to collect demand and aggregation data. Right, and they're going to feed in kind of a perspective more proactively rather than reactively. Uh, I think the companies, you know, the, the you know the companies that actually do this really well are going to have a differentiated edge, right, in going into in knowing which real estate markets to go into um, to to get a better understanding of where you know demand and such is going to be aggregated. How do how do you think about kind of just in general non obvious pieces of information you guys monitor when you're thinking about you know, making real estate purchases, and then, you know, we can take cloud kitchens as an, as an application of that. Keith loves cloud kitchens. I mean, I'm a big believer in, yeah, cloud kitchens, and I, I don't think that'll be a winner-take-all kind of market, even though you got, you know, Travis uh, sort of spearheading that. Um, I think it's a definitely a, a new sort of growing real estate asset class that's converting, you know, underutilized properties, um, you know, in, in uh, in air, urban areas that could fulfill the need of, you know, people that, that are or ordering food. And I think you're going to see a lot more restaurants, you know, sh shrinking their footprints because it just costs too much money to rent, you know, a, a retail kind of establishment. You can only have, you're restricted by the number of people that are in there. A lot of these takeout orders are bogging down their back of the, uh, what do you call it? Back of the office, back of the back, back house. Back back house. Of the back of the house. She, she, she worked in uh, the restaurant business before. So, um, and I think you're just to see a proliferation of that. And this whole COVID thing is going to just accelerate that, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're ordering a lot more online right now because of it. I think that behavior is going to continue even in, when people are going back uh, to work and restaurants reopen and stuff. It's yeah. Well, think of it this way. Um, most restaurants, first of all, shut down or go bankrupt within the first few years. Right. Uh, there's different numbers floating around saying 90% of restaurants 
won't come back after COVID-19. I mean, that's terrifying. But the ones that are still working are doing it at a loss. They're just doing doing it to keep in touch with their customer base so that they're not forgotten. Yeah. And I think with cloud kitchens, to me, what's most exciting is you don't need the real estate space that you have that's so large today for restaurants. And if we do go back <coughs> to dining in, we take 25% of their income because now you're going to have to sit in such a way where it takes a certain amount of their seating away and you have to be six feet apart and that's not going to work either. Um, and I think the exciting part with cloud kitchens, I think it's, it has to be partnered with transportation in some way where uh, I could envision maybe a cloud kitchen doing really well if there was uh, a runway of sorts for drones to be able to deliver uh, because once we go back to traffic here in LA and elsewhere, it's going to take forever to, to deliver the food. Um, and it doesn't have the same translation as if you were to eat in a, in a restaurant. But I think some, um, I think somebody who does it really well is Sugarfish. Uh, mm. And I, and again, that's design centric, right? It's packaged, it's branded, um, and it tastes really good. Uh, and I think others are going to follow suit. Uh, I, I believe in cloud kitchens. Keith is pushing me to, to do them. And uh, I, I've been studying areas and, and looking for a site. So to be determined. How are you guys thinking about, you mentioned COVID, right? How have your thoughts, if they have, you know, changed in the COVID area, right? So, so my general philosophy is, in general, COVID's accelerating a lot of the trends that we, you know, accepted or, or um, you know, um, thought we're going to come through in the next 10 years. The mobility space, I think, um, is a really interesting example, though potentially of a, of a counter example, right? So what's happening is we're seeing a lot of trends like grocery, right, delivery, et cetera, just get accelerated through the roof. Um, in autonomous and in mobility, right, I, and I was, a, I, I still am in many respects, a firm believer that, you know, we don't need cars, right? They only have 4% utilization. Parking lots are like the size of Connecticut in this country. It's crazy. But I certainly found myself during this era and this time period thinking, man, I'm so glad I have an individual car and I don't want to take any public transport or be in a shared kind of respect, right? So how are you guys, how is your thought process just in general, right, to buying properties, to just in general kind of thinking about the space? How has that changed or adjusted in, in a COVID era? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think I'm starting to think about where people are going to want to live and are you going to see, you know, more suburban suburbanization? Um, because I think the biggest change is going to be more companies realizing they don't need that much office space. I think you're going to see a, a structural change in office like we've seen in retail over the last 10 years. Like this nation has been way over retailed in terms of square footage. And I think you're, you're going to start seeing that in, in terms of office because a lot more people are going to work from home and, you know, the company could just give them a stipend and, and they'll save a lot of money than actually renting physical office space. So I think a lot more people are going to choose that suburban lifestyle. You had a sort of a, you know, a lot of people running to live in the cities over the last 10 years, a lot of, you know, urban areas, down, downtowns have been revitalized. Um, and I think you'll, you'll see a reverse back to the, the suburbs um, because of the whole, you know, work, you don't have to actually drive into an office every day. And, um, you know, the commute is the biggest time suck and productivity suck, you know, so if you don't have to do that, then, you know, might as well live, live a little further out where, you know, it's nicer to get more bang for your buck, bit more space. Um, so I, I see that as, you know, the biggest uh, change in terms of um, on the real estate front. And then I don't know how quickly people are going to go back to hotels. You know, there's mm. I saw one of the brands is, is creating the 
the clean clean stay or I don't know what they're calling it exactly, but they're gonna showcase how cleanly its cleanliness is gonna be like top priority, right? They're gonna have people in the in the common areas just all day cleaning pretty much to show, you know, visually, wow, this this place is is keeping really clean, right? I mean, um they're gonna I don't know how, how quickly people are going to go back to staying in hotels. Um, and, but I think a lot of that hotel stock could maybe, you know, with the right zoning be converted to long-term, you know, apartments or extended stay apartments. So, um, you know, we're looking, looking at that space. I think you're going to see huge structural changes in student housing. Uh, you're, you're going to, in my opinion, see a huge amount of universities go under and they are already are. This is, will just accelerate that trend. And, um, I'd be scared shitless if I had student housing because you have only a certain window to, to lease up in and who knows when school's going to actually start again and what that's going to look like. Um, and I think uh, you're just going to see more push towards online learning. You're, you're going to see not everyone, you know, needs to saddle up with $200,000 of debt and get a four year degree. You're going to see proliferation of trade schools more. And, you know, that's why we're a big uh, investor and believer in Lambda school, for example. Um, and, you know, there's some real estate classes that I would just really uh, think that are going to be scary to have and want, you might want to reposition. Like malls, for example, have been declining for a long time. I, I don't see that anytime soon uh, changing. Um, we're still believers in self-storage. That's another one we're pursuing actively. Manufactured housing, mobile home parks, still like that one. I like just real estate that has a lot of... Um, you know, tenants, you don't have to rely on any one tenant. They have sticky tenant base. Uh, hotels just nightly stays, right? So you could quickly uh, be very unoccupied just like you are right now with, with the pandemic. Even even if there wasn't pandemic, just a normal, you know, recession, you, you see occupancies really swing. Um, and uh, RV parks, I'm actually a believer still in RV parks. It's sort of like a quasi hotelish experience, but you don't have to have to you know, constantly revamp and spend money with FF&E and whatever they call it, all those revamping the hotel every few years. So we own an RV park in, in your part of the world in Monterey, and it's doing extremely well. We've seen a little dip now with shelter in place, but I think once that's lifted, people are going to want to tra travel, and then you're not going to see as much travel on, on uh, aircraft, right? You're going to see more people traveling in the U.S. in their RVs, and it's a huge industry. I, I really never knew about it until, it, you know, being in the mobile home park space, it opened my eyes. So. How do you guys, how do you think about kind of the build versus buy approach from a portfolio construction perspective, right? So a lot a lot of what I'm hearing is you've kind of got existing real estate classes, right? Certain of them are going to be attractive, some are not going to be attractive, obviously based on these different trends and potential accelerations because of COVID. Um, but what I'm what I'm curious to hear your perspectives on, and Galena, maybe this is more in your wheelhouse, right? Is how do you think about kind of net new build opportunities? So for example, we're seeing a lot more companies like cul-de-sac, right? Where communities are just being built, you know, from the ground up itself. How do you guys think about that from both the portfolio construction perspective, as well as just kind of the relative attractiveness of that? Um, well, there's a couple of ways to answer that question for you. And going back to your other question, we have a building that's literally in front of the Metro. It's like you roll out of bed and you're on the Metro. Out of 60 renters, zero take the Metro. They don't hmm. use it. Um, I think in terms of build versus buy right now, what I'm looking at is you have a lot of new construction projects being completed and they're going through a lease up phase and obviously they're not leasing. Um, and that's terrifying and, uh, cap rates are going up. Um, and so 
I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, well, I'd much rather buy that building that just got completed, uh, brand new construction, vacant, um, tweak it a little bit, maybe rebrand it, and uh, you know, sit and, and, and wait and, and lease it. I, I think you're not gonna see many people who are gonna be able to hold on to their properties, um, especially those who didn't buy it right to begin with, uh, have loans coming due, um, high interest rates are over leveraged, uh, in terms of the communities, you know, you asked how COVID might change things. Keith believes people are going to go to the suburbs. Um, I could see that happening, but I think people ultimately will want to live in uh, in main hubs where there's things happening and art and and, and food and, and restaurants and excitement. Um, you're not going to get that so much in the suburbs. But what I do envision happening, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot on the Skya side, is creating micro um, communities that look like homes essentially or like small lots of division homes and there's a community area there is a hiking path nearby if you're not too far away from from the city you're going to be using your car um, and there's services there so maybe there's a daycare that's offered that's on site um, there's maybe an urgent uh, urgent care uh, also that's there um and you're creating kind of a, your own little neighborhood and i see that doing really well versus i'm just going to move over to the suburbs because you're isolated there um and you can only do that for so long how do you think about so cul-de-sac interestingly enough kind of when so there's there's two components right there's kind of there's the build component versus buy but then there's the promote versus management right so they've bundled that when you think about, you know, when you're thinking about kind of net new build, if, you know, if that becomes attractive or so, do you, do you find value in that sort of aggregation of the business model? Or you think that there's a distinction in companies that should promote, you know, companies that should manage? Um, well, back to your question on like, if, if you should buy your existing or build, we, in LA, most of our properties we own are, are built um, because there is higher barriers to entry. And if you get get a building done, you know it, it, you're getting paid to do it essentially. So when you're in, when you're buying an existing building, you don't get the same kind of return. So we choose to to build um, in this market. It's local, and you know we we have good uh, insight on, on all the regulations and local contractors, and it's much more involved than than buying an existing building and, and just rehabbing it. So um, we only really focus on building primarily. Um, so far in, in our backyard here in LA. Um, and then what I liked about cul-de-sac is that, yeah, they're, they're building a new community, but they're, they're doing it carless in, in, in Tempe, Arizona, which is really interesting. Um, you know, Phoenix being so sp sprawling and spread out like in LA. Um, but I, I like the idea because it is, you know, a real community. They're, they're taking a, you know, big swing and, um, you know, building, building a huge community without cars, a big leap of faith. Um, you know, I, I still don't understand why it's venture backed to, to tell you the truth. Um, say more, I, is, is it another, you know, wh wh like why was we work ever, you know, venture backed? I know people in that co-working space that have made a killing because, uh, the guys like that own premier business centers, they bought it out of bankruptcy years and years ago and they just have grown it organically and run it off cash flow. It's been crushing. And, um, I just don't understand why cul-de-sac is like a venture back business. Um, 
not to hate on cul-de-sac, but just any real estate development. Um, so I don't know. Common? What? Common. Yeah, common. I mean, I love we we love those team those guys, and they, you know they're going to probably you know we're we're looking at them and others to potentially manage our our, our properties that were in the co living space because I don't want to be in property management, but essentially it's a tech enabled property management you know company. And but there's not very much tech going back to tech. what we talked about. No. Before, look, I have a building that we're about to break ground on here and. Uh, in East Hollywood, close to Children's Hospital, Kaiser, right across the street from the Metro, great location. I would love to build this building without parking. It would save me $2 million on my construction costs. But the reality is, is we know that the tenants will not take the Metro. They have cars, they need to park them somewhere. There's no parking. Um, when the building is complete, if I have zero parking, my valuation on the property is gonna be impacted in a negative way because First of all, that's loss of income. Second of all, uh, you're going to have reduced rents to try to, you know, bring in people to, to rent, despite the fact that you don't have parking. Um, we have looked at companies that offer uh, an option where they provide the cars, you swipe your credit card, you get in, you use it for however long you need to use it, you bring it back and the car stays parked there. But are people really ready for that to go carless? I I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's too early. I mean, I I, I, I want to see what happens with this cul-de-sac. Do they break ground yet on their community? I mean, is actually... Yeah, I think they've broken ground in Phoenix. And I think they're gearing up to buy uh, or, or build, rather, another community that would be significantly larger, but it's, it's undisclosed. But I'll tell you, I think the reason is, is people don't want to wait. We're not accustomed to waiting anymore because <laughs> anything I could get, I could get right away, right? I could get an Uber, it's there in two minutes. Lyft, whatever, two minutes. Um, I, I, in that scenario, Carlos, I'm going to have to do that much more planning. I'm not that forward thinking when I plan out my day and I'm that organized. And then on top of that, I'm going to have to wait for whatever that form of transportation is to arrive, whether I'm using public transit or I'm using Uber. the Uber or I'm using the other service that I mentioned to you where you could basically rent the car for a few hours a day. I don't want to have to deal with that. I want to get in my car, get where I need to go, come back and be Unless done. you live in like New York City, right? I mean, sometimes some areas you don't want to, you know, have a car. Maybe it's too expensive to keep it, to park it, to, you know, traffic. You, you can walk everywhere if it's a small community. And, you know, otherwise, well, I think right now you still need a car, you know. Yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see. I, I share in the thesis in, in general, right? Not particularly on cul-de-sac, but I... I think there's been a, a very large conflation over the last four or five years, especially of venture-backed businesses going into pure software versus tech-enabled businesses, right? Margin profiles are very different. Valuations obviously need to be different. And I think we're seeing kind of this latest vintage unfold in that way, which a lot of people backed companies with a software multiple and a software mindset, but they're going to pan out to actually be you know, tech-enabled versus pure software companies. Yeah. Did, isn't, didn't Keith Reboyce invest in... Colasac? You did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's founded. It's interesting because it's founded actually by the, uh, the early open door team. Interesting. I, so maybe it's more of a relationship kind of thing then. I, I, I just don't understand. And he's a smart guy. You know, we, we, uh, we, we've pitched him, we've talked to him. I, I don't know. I, I, only time will tell if, you know, if it should be a venture back. Kind of. Yeah. I, I, and I, I want to round out the conversation actually on kind of Gelt VC and just in general, you know, how you guys think about your early stage tech exposure. Right. So, 
Uh, I'm curious, you know, how you got involved in early stage investing. How did you think about GelbVC in your broader portfolio? Um, and and I find it interesting because, and this might not be your philosophy at all, but I always think there's a component, obviously, for returns, right? But then there's almost a component, you know, of your own. It's it's kind of the best source of R and D to have a small startup portfolio or be very active in this world, right? Because you're consistently seeing how just other people in other sectors are thinking about applying technology. So talk a little bit more about you know how why you started Gelt VC right and, and how you just think about it in general in your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, it's funny like we get a lot of prop tech kind of deals sent our way and nothing really passes muster. Like we're not interested in any of them really. I don't know if we're just jaded or nothing's. But I think it's more like nothing's really that innovative and you're not really solving a real problem, right? <clears throat> Most of them are just a little nonsense. So. Um, I'd say, you know, VC started because we were already doing some angel investing on the side, you know, to back founders we liked and diversify our funds a little. And then we said, wow, we have all these investors. We have around a thousand individual investors. They don't have access to, you know, these kind of investments. And so we brought on a gentleman who was uh, one of the earlier investors in Demuso to run our VC fund and made him partner and let him decide on all the different investments. And we really, really just provided the anchor LP check and, and then brought in some of our other investors into it. And we're in the process of uh, invest. So we invested that fund in 20 companies, early stage, um, average check size around 200, give or take thousand. And uh, we're doing it again now, probably going to have more companies, maybe 40 companies. Um, we have a gentleman named Turner Novak running it. Um, really smart individual who I found on Twitter actually um, two years ago and I've been following him and uh, he, he works at a, for a large um, endowment uh, capital allocator. And I just like the way his mind works and he's very well connected in terms of like he's a lot of founders go to him and talk to him and he knows a lot of other VCs and, but he's been, he's based in uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right. So that no, none of these VCs, you know, even though they're all, you know, Harvard and Stanford educated, they, they couldn't make a VC bet on the guy. And I said, you know what, I'm fuck it. I'm going to make a VC bet on him. And he's going to prove that he's going to have some amazing returns. And so far, we're in companies, it's a little early, but we've already seen, you know, the seed rounds we did, the A rounds are led by top tier VCs, which is a good, you know, sign, good indicator. And um, so I think uh, it's providing diversity for us as partners, because all, most of our net worths are in real estate. So this just provides another, you know, asset class that, that's sort of non-correlated with the stock market too much. Um, I love just startups in general and backing entrepreneurs that are trying to do things that are going to change the world. Um, just something I'm passionate about being a fellow entrepreneur and I just, I'm too busy running the real estate company. So I'm not really out there meeting with other entrepreneurs and other BCs. And so literally I, I, I give the reins to Turner to make the investment decisions on which companies to invest in. And he'll talk to me about it and show me the memo deal memos he writes and stuff. And just really, uh, really cool companies we're in. Well, Keith, Galena, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you guys both had the time. And Galena, I'm glad that at the last minute we were able to pull you in as well. It was, it was a lot of fun hearing both of your perspectives and um, looking forward to our listeners really getting a, a deeper perspective on real estate. I think it's, it's really interesting. You're seeing a lot of founders and folks in tech now exploring outside asset classes, right? Whether it's coming into liquidity events, so on and so forth, whether it's cash flow businesses, pure play real estate, et cetera. So uh, excited for folks to really hear your guys' perspective. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank thanks, you. Thanks for having us on the show.